the Beat All Army Wrestling Radio Show. I'm Jordan Tom, followed Brian Rowan, and we got a really special guest here for episode 16. He's got a long list of accolades. I'm going to name a couple of them. He was the first ever four-time state champion in Iowa high school history. He was an NCAA All-American. He's an inductee in the National Wrestling Hall of Fame. He's a class of 66 graduate, a Vietnam veteran, and a published author and motivational speaker. And I am privileged to have Bob Steenledge on tonight. Bob, how are you? Good. Glad Great. To Glad to be here tonight. Awesome. Well, we've had the really, pleasure really, of... Really appreciate you coming on. And just for the listeners, um, <laughs> as I say, just so the listeners know, uh, Bob has told us several times to call him Bob and not sir. So uh, we're not being disrespectful. We're just giving him his wishes. Um, but you know, I, I know some people out there are like, you call him, why are you calling him sir? So I, you know, I want to throw that out there. Um, just so everybody knows too. <laughs> Don't want to get in trouble with Bob. All right. Well, we got a lot on the docket for, uh, for Bob. He's got a lot of awesome stories that I'm excited for everybody to hear. We've got kind of a cliff notes version so far, but starting in the beginning, Bob, uh, with your high school career, you accomplished something that was historic. It was unprecedented at the time by becoming, you know, the state of Iowa's first ever four-time state champion. And I know talking with you briefly, this certainly didn't come by accident. Um, talk us through growing up in your early childhood and what drove you to that mentality that you set that high goal and then also achieved it. Okay. Well, it's fairly involved, but I'll try to be as brief as I can. Um, I was born on February 28th, uh, 1944, uh, when my dad was on the way to Sicily for World War II. And he was wounded there and came home a year or so later. And uh, anyway, he had uh, issues from, from World War II. And, uh, and I had a younger brother, four years younger, and another brother, six years younger, and two younger sisters. And uh, we had a very dysfunctional family. And I had a very bad relationship with, with my father. And uh, being from a dysfunctional family, I had lots of issues. I, I, uh, I was a very poor student. In fact, I just came across this the other day, sorting out a file. I don't know why I still had it. But in my third grade, it shows that I was in the bottom third of the class. And uh, in, in, in every area or worse than that. So the chances of me ever having any kind of success in life in sports or in life was not really probable. So I'll share briefly as I can what happened. One day, my, my dad, who's a volunteer fireman, took our family to a family fireman picnic. And we were kind of looked down on as a, as a poor family and dysfunctional and, and uh, so anyway, we walked into this area where the picnic was at the, at the fairgrounds. There were several tables whispering and pointing at us, just like we were a minority of some sort, you know? And there were no minorities in the little town of Brit, Iowa, but that's how I felt. And I was a very sensitive child, and it just bothered me so much. And as I went by several tables, and they were saying, the bad things about our family and this and that. And I just couldn't take it anymore. And, I, and, and something happened inside of me, just like an explosion. And I vowed in my lifetime, I'm never, ever, ever going to make fun of another person because it makes you feel so horrible. 
And then another thing that happens, I'm going to prove to them and I'm going to be somebody. Something happened in my heart that started a series of things in my life. I couldn't answer questions in class. I used to look around and see why everybody asking questions. And then since I made that decision to do something, I got a good sixth grade teacher. I got a good seventh grade teacher. I got some good teachers and so forth. And then when I was going into seventh grade, I had a dream. And in this dream, I saw a John Deere tractor and how the mechanic comes out to fix it. And the dream said that human beings are the same way. And the dream had said, most people are lazy. Doesn't make a difference of your IQ and so forth. If you're willing to outwork them, you can outwork them. Most people are lazy. The second thing that came to me is that kindness in life will be a great benefit to you. And, and so I became a, I was already that way, but even more so from that dream, I'm going to be as kind as I can to everybody at all times. The next thing that came to me is to be thankful. So I'm thankful for this. I'm thankful for that. I can tell you story after story. And I learned how to be thankful for bad things because if you're thankful for your bad things, they turn out to be good things in the long run and so forth. So my life began to change. So from going at the bottom of the class, all of a sudden, I started raising up and raising up and raising up my thoughts. And then I wanted to go off for sports. I weighed 75 pounds in seventh grade. So I played football through high school, small school, but I was small. Ran track, I wasn't very good in track. But wrestling was weight classes. So I weighed 75 pounds in seventh grade. And my mother's mother, my grandmother, and my mother and I, we were very close. And I, one day, and it so happened that wrestling was really big in Northern Iowa at the time. And one of the reasons is because of a man by the name of Frank Gotch, who was from a town not too far from mine. Frank Gotch was a professional wrestler, and he was as famous at that time as Muhammad Ali was now. And Teddy Roosevelt actually had him come to the White House to wrestle wrestlers from other countries and so forth. So wrestling was the talk of Iowa, especially in the Northern Iowa, and they started wrestling in my school. So I decided to tell my mom and grandmother, never told another soul, if I'm gonna make something out of my life, I'm gonna set a high goal. So my goal is to be the first person in Iowa to win the state championship four years in a row. And that, and that is how the whole thing started. One step at a time and one step at a time. And just a couple of stories before we go on to West Point and so forth, is that I had a surrogate father and my coach from seventh grade through my junior year. And he was uh, on the Olympic team or an alternate wrestles at Iowa State. He was a great, great coach. And he helped me along uh, greatly. And then during my junior and senior year, when I went to football practice that fall, my coach wasn't there. I couldn't believe it. And I started asking around and they said, there was some trouble with the school board and he got fed up with this or something, he left town. So here's my surrogate coach for seventh grade through junior year, going for the fourth time championship and he's gone. Never even said anything. So there is a choice I had to make. Am I gonna pout? Am I gonna feel sorry for myself? Or am I gonna be thankful for this great loss and look for good? 
my new coach was Jim Craig, national champion, University of Iowa, 175-pounder. So that was not an advantage. I used to work out with my coach and so forth. And they made the coach promise he wouldn't work out with me because he didn't want me to get hurt or something. Well, anyway, as it turns out, if I hadn't had that new coach, I never would have won it the fourth time because the pressure was so great. And um, I, I, this is all like life to me, so pardon me if I get emotional at times. But the newspapers would say that it can't be done. Nobody can do it. Nobody can do it. And then one day I, I talked to my coach to go and take downs and I hurt my back. And I missed my first day of practice, missed two weeks of practice. And they said I wasn't going to wrestle again. I got back 10 days before the tournaments. And one of the things I relied on was being in better shape than anybody else. When I walked on the mat, I knew I did more push-ups, more pull-ups, threw more bales of hay, worked on the farm. I knew that I was in better shape. Now I didn't have that advantage. So in the semifinals, I wrestled somebody where I hurt my arm really bad. And they didn't rush you off to the doctor right away. But the Iowa State coach was the referee of that match. And he told my coach, this is a suggestion, let Stingley just roll around in the restaurant when it sweats on, bring something to eat, don't take him out. Because in the finals, if that stiffens up, they're going to take him someplace and get him x-rayed. So essentially, when I got x-rayed on Thursday, I had a separated shoulder. So I'm wrestling in the finals with a separated shoulder, not knowing at the time. And my coach was devastated that he was the one that hurt me. And his wife told me, please, please win, because her husband would take this with him the rest of his life. So I found out that going through pain and reaching a goal for somebody else will drive you more than doing it yourself. And there was so much pressure, I was just wearing out. So I had to win it for the coach. Otherwise, it would affect him the rest of his life. So anyway, the match was very close. It was two to two going into the third period. He was down. He told me many years later that he had never been held down. And I didn't have my grip. But anyway, the match went back and forth and back and forth. And somehow, he never got away in the score ended up to be two and two. And so either we're going into writing, I mean, into overtime or I had writing time. So the, there was a big hush in the whole tournament. And uh, they had all these judges over there trying to figure out how much writing time there was and so forth. So after a long time, pretty soon the referee comes back. And I'm watching his eyes to see if I could get any kind of answer, indication whether I got to go overtime. And there was no indication. He walks up to me, <clears throat> shakes my hand, shoots my arm up in the air, my separated shoulder, pain went up and down, and says, congratulations, you just won the championship for the fourth time. And that crowd. There was my mother and wow. <laughs> My mother never best one wrestled me. And my grandmother was always afraid I was going to get hurt. And she got a job emptying bedpans in Chicago and sent the money to my mother to help raise us. But she got on a plane and flew to the state tournament every year, sat up there with her coat over her head, watching if I was still alive and so forth. 
and to see my mom and grandmother and how happy they were. And then all of a sudden they make this announcement for the first time in the history of the world. Then it was a big pause, not the world, Iowa. For the first time in the state of Iowa, somebody won the state championship for the fourth time. And it turned out that Mike Johnson from Pennsylvania had won it the year before, who I wrestled in the finals of the Easterns later on. So that's that's how the whole thing started. you know, as far as the goals in high school. No, I really appreciate you sharing that, Bob. I mean, that's, uh, when you're telling us that a uh, little bit of that on the show, or, you know, the pre-show when we were talking through that, uh, I was getting goosebumps um, just thinking about, like, the good pain that would happen when he when he raised your arm and, uh, you know, kind of the kind of words that the referee said to you. Yes. So something that's kind of interesting, Bob, is, you know, you had this great success in high school and it was historic at the time. And then coming up right behind you is Dan Gable. Um, did you have any kind of relationship with him growing up or was that kind of after the fact? What What's kind of the deal with that? Well, it's an after, after the fact. He was four years younger. And uh, one of the things he's disappointed in his career that he never won a four times with wasn't his fault. He was from a big school, Waterloo, where they had uh, the high school divided in 9th and 12th. And so he could not wrestle in varsity as a freshman. Otherwise, mm. he, but he was four years younger. It so happened my brother was four years younger. And Dan Gable and my brother Les got hired at the University of Iowa at the same time. My brother to be an assistant AD and Dan to be the coach. And, and because of wrestling, my brother Dan and I have become very close uh, Wow, small world. So something you mentioned was that your high school coach was really successful. He's an Olympian, uh, Iowa State graduate. And then your second coach your senior year was an Iowa guy. I guess I'm just curious what uh, drove your decision to attend West Point rather than they what seemed kind of obvious at staying home and you stayed at Iowa and attending one of those universities. Uh, interesting question. I, I actually – got a letter from Coach Alex in my junior year, 1961. And he was a coach at Osage, Iowa, which is the competition of us in Northern Iowa. And he, he went from high school coach to being the coach at West Point. So he did a lot of recruiting from Iowa. So I got a letter from Coach Alex about the possibility of going to West Point. And I'm ashamed to tell you this, but this is way back and we kind of lived in the sticks. I didn't even know what West Point was. So he told me about it. And, asked me to take some tests and, and I was going to, to different colleges and so forth and, and checking out campuses and so forth. But anyway, it was, and, and even though I was a hard worker, I don't do very well on standard tests. So I took the test to get into West Point and somehow passed the test. And then, and, and uh, this is an actual postcard dated uh, well, April 1962. It's, it's a postcard from Berlin, East Berlin, Brandenburg Gate. And here is a, it's my notification from Coach Alice that I've been accepted into West Point. Wow. So that's Coach Ward needs to step up, step up his wow. game. That's, that's awesome you kept that. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that's not what they're handing out now. That's cool. So anyway, that's how it all started. Awesome. And so it was more, I just, 
I don't know, I, I just got caught up in it or something, you know, it was such an honor to go to West Point. And there was no talk about war. And if there was talk about war at that time, I probably would have gone because, you know, it was what happened to sure. my dad and so forth. So, so I went there to get a free education and in, in to wrestle. That's, that's why I went. And, and I was able to get a, a regular appointment through our congressman at that time. Well, talking through some of the specifics with West Point, um, the joke is that West Point never really changes and everything stays the same and it's kind of its own little snow globe. However, uh, obviously a lot of things have changed since the 60s, um, just from a standpoint of, you know, modernization with internet and computers, cell phones, probably the, some of the way that they did things. Can you talk us through what it was like going to West Point in the early 60s and just any funny academy stories or folklore that, that you were involved in, we'd love to hear that. Sure. Um, the plebe system way back in the 60s, in my opinion, was not good. But most cadets all these years said, if I went through it, they're going to go through it. And it was very, very hard to change. And finally, I can't remember the superintendent that actually was able to stay at West Point more than two years and he was able to get a change. But the, the, the West Point Cleve system was ridiculous and was not conducive to producing good uh, army officers in the sense they could do anything to you. You can't do anything to your soldiers. You know, they, they could starve you. You had to sit on six inches of your chair. You had to hold your chin in all the time. Uh, you know, and, and, they, and if somebody took a disliking to you, they could just keep giving you demerits and demerits. And there were many good officers, potential officers that got kicked out just because some of our classmen, uh, you know, didn't like them. And, and uh, many of these, some of these that got kicked out went to ROTC or something and be, won silver stars and different things in Vietnam. So there were just many, many faults uh, with the plebe system. And so, my roommate and I, Mark and I in particular, we just we just disagreed with the police system. And we were not very good upperclassmen because we didn't do all that junk to the police. <laughs> we tried to treat them like soldiers you know, and so forth. So the police system needed to be changed into something more like the real army. And finally it did. And when we left, uh, we didn't think that that would actually happen uh, in our lifetime, but it, but it did. And, uh, my roommate, Mark Squirman, uh, who's also an All-American third place finisher at the Nationals, when we graduated, he threw away everything that reminded him of West Point because of the fleet system, because he had a good friend that got run out of it and later won the Silver Star in Vietnam and so forth. So he was very bitter against the fleet system. But anyway, as his friend, I thought, well, I'm going to save a few things that you can see I have my cadet hat and tar bucket and a few other things in, in the back there. But I pulled Mark's tar bucket out of the garbage. And I thought, someday I'm going to send this to him. Well, it was, you know, we kept it in storage and so forth. Long story short, two months ago, I pulled it out of storage and sent it to him. And he never saw a more happy camper to get that tar bucket. <laughs> After 54 years, he took pictures of the star. Wow. <laughs> so after 54 that must have been all amazing for him. Yeah, it, it really was. There's um, so many things that I can 
hair, you know, that, that happened at, at West Point and so forth. Um, one of the things I might share with you in just no particular order is that uh, there is a, a book, a famous book about our class called The Long Gray Line by Rick, Rick Atkinson, and it's considered to be made, to be made into a movie at one time. And it's a true story of several of our classmates that followed them getting into West Point, through West Point, and through Vietnam. This is one of the best books you ever read in West Point. And these are people that most of them are still alive. And one of those is George Crocker. He was from my company, F2. And at that time, uh, as a two-star general, he was featured on the US News Report. And it was all, there was big articles in here all, all about our uh, class and so forth. So I would recommend that information. Um, Something else that comes to mind uh, is that our class is the one that was responsible for actually stealing the Navy goat. I mean, <laughs> all through history of Westland, I think there was only one other time that <laughs> But anyway, there's a book by Tom Carhart, who was one of those that actually was involved in stealing the Navy goat. Here's a picture of them with the Navy goat. Awesome. Uh, Anyway, this is an excellent book, and it so happened that Billy, the goat at the time, was, was guarded by Marines at one of the most secure military bases in the United States. And I remember six or seven of my classmates got in there and got him out. And, uh, and, and it's just an unbelievable uh, story. Uh, Did they get in any trouble for that? Well, they were going to, you know, I mean, they had the top grads at the Pentagon, kick them out, kick them out, kick them out. <laughs> Superintendent at the uh, Navy, kick them out, kick them out, kick them out. <laughs> but as it got out in the press, the press was the other way. They're heroes, they're heroes. Another patent, another Eisenhower. <laughs> anyway, in the book, it tells them how they went through the, to the committee and they were very close to getting kicked out. And finally, the pressure was relieved from, from the general to the admiral and stuff. And they got the Navy going back. And so they, they uh, got off with a minor punishment. But the whole time they, could, they were ready to get kicked out and everything. But it's a, it's a magnificent uh, story. Tom was one of them. Uh, another interesting, thing is uh, General Westmoreland uh, was the superintendent at West Point my first two years. And he loved wrestling. And when I remember whenever he came into the, wherever the meet was, he, uh, everybody would have to stand except two of the ones who were wrestling. You know? So anyway, at the end of 64, he went to become the commander in Vietnam. So uh, I graduated in 66, Airborne Ranger School. So by uh, 68, I ended up at Vietnam and also all, all of a sudden at this uh, one place in, uh, in Vietnam where I was, he said, General Westmoreland's coming. Of course, we're not anxious to see the general. We're all grubby and we had a shave and a few things like that. So anyway, General Westmoreland's coming down the line and I'm just lined up like many other soldiers. And this is exactly how it happened. He stopped, looked at my face, Looks at my name tag, looks at my face, looks at my name tag, 
looked at my face and said, how did wrestling go, go here the last two years? And I said, well, fainted. He cared that much about his cadets and so forth and remembered four years later. Anyway, when he sent me his personal book, he wrote his, in the front of the book, it says, to Bob Stingley, he's one of my favorite, favorite cadets and fellow Vietnam vet. With best wishes always, William Westmoreland, January of 90. So that's one of wow. my treasures. And then when we were at our class reunion, uh, we visited uh, you know, the cemetery and his gravesite he's buried at, at West Point. Now, uh, these are some of the particular uh, things in general and so forth. I can get more specific and there's enough questions that you've written are so interesting. I don't want to skip any of them, but um, Mark Skirman and Bob Robbins and I uh, were so close and we were all, all All-Americans. Only class at West Point that had three All-Americans. Mm -hmm. And uh, if, if you go into the Arvin Gymnasium, Bob Arvin was the captain of the team the year before me and got killed in Vietnam and the gym's named after him. You'll see our picture up there uh, with the team with, with Bob Arvin. And when we were there in 16, we had a picture pointing up there taken with him and so forth. But we were all uh, kind of known as the Three Musketeers and we were very close. And, and the talk around the, the core was, if those three guys end up in Vietnam and somebody threw a grenade on them, they'd be pushing each other off to fall, to fall on, the, on, the, on the grenade to save the other, the other person. Um, we, we, we were that close and <laughs> supported each other and, uh, and we were known as the rough, tough wrestlers. And one tournament we were at, we had a little time off, so we went to, a, the only movie was a Bambi movie and, and each one of us are trying to keep from crying and pretty soon all three of us in the <laughs> Bambi movie with tears coming down our cheeks and so forth. Um, <laughs> So many, uh, I'm just going to check some of my notes. Well, there's uh, definitely one story we want to hear about. Okay, before we go there, uh, this is one thing when I'm thinking of it. You, uh, sometime you asked a question about did we have calculators and so forth there. West Point was one of the first places in the United States to have a computer. Big, huge room with cards and everything. The first computer, computer and we used... Uh, slide rules for all our engineering classes and so forth. And it's quite interesting how you can come up with answers uh, in general and so forth, but we use those and it wasn't a year or so later that we had, uh, they had calculators and so forth. So anyway, what was your question? Did you, one story? I, and there's lots of stories, but did you have one in mind? I, I want to hear the story of you um, you sneaking your girlfriend uh, in the mess hall that one okay. time. You, you, you didn't tell the full story uh, on the pre-show, but I really want to hear that, that, that you elaborate on that. Okay. Yeah, considering there was no females at the academy at the time. females <laughs> at the academy and so forth. Anyway, Mark, Mark uh, used to kid my wife all the time about things like she's two and a, I met her when I came home my sophomore year. And she, she had her teaching job in my hometown. So she taught two years in Britt Island. My last year, she got a teaching job near West Point. 
And so she's two and a half years older. Mark used to always kid her, you're going to be 25 and a quarter of a century old and so forth. He was always picking on her, you know, in a good way and so forth. And he says, why don't you sneak in the wet mess hall? Well, my wife of 54 years uh, is kind of from the farm and kind of adventurous and so forth. So she said, uh, okay. So only Mark, myself, and, and, and Bobby, my wife, future wife, knew about it. So we planned this whole thing out, just like a military operation. And we, she was able to fit in my uniform and everything and so forth. And in fact, I'll show you a picture. And, uh, and so anyway, uh, we lived in North Area. And so she put on the cadet clothes, put her clothes on top, got on post. They had recognized her. She parked where the gym is. And then it was real close to getting to the north, the north area. And we had everything, we had no calculus, I mean, no cell phones or anything. And at an exact certain time before the morning breakfast formation of the day we graduated, just like a military operation, she took off her, in the car, the, her, her clothes. She had the cadet uniform on, got out of the car, looked around, put her hat on, came watch, you know, Back of the superintendent's house came marching into North Area. Mark and I are standing on the stoops. If we had a cell phone, we would have called it off right then because we forgot about one thing. Women in military uniforms with trousers on from the back look much different from men because of their white hip, whiter hips. And so we knew if there was attack in the area, they would have spotted her. So we already thought we were in trouble. But anyway, she got into formation. And we told the whole company that we're going to try sneaking her in the mess hall. Man, they just <laughs> the most wonderful thing. So they found her, and we had taught her how to march and everything. So we found a place in formation. So we get to the steps, and the, whole, the, the tall cadets gathered around her. And so they didn't see her. She went up the steps, and she got to one of the tables and so forth. And the plan was if a tag came around, she was going to get under the table. And of course, it was graduation days. So there was some confusion and so forth. So she, she made it to the meal without getting caught. Now we had to get out. So same, reverse the process. of a bunch of cadets, tall, got her, and got out and so forth. And then we thought about what we just did. And we realized we must have been crazy. <laughs> we, you know, they could have kept me from graduating or anything or so forth. But anyway... Um, here's a picture of her. Let's see. That cadet. is hilarious. Here's a picture of her. <laughs> that was a bold move, Bob. We were talking about that before. Right? They could have. They could have got some serious trouble for that. I was just going to say. Uh, I'll just interject this. Uh, when I went to the speak to the wrestling team in, in 2016 at our 50th reunion, I took this all these pictures and stuff along and they just loved looking at the different pictures, but they were, one of the things that they were most interested in was the, the disciplinary reports. Yeah. For your, for the rules. And explain uh, to them what you're showing on the camera in case they can't see it. Okay. This is a disciplinary report. Then I'll explain it. Anyway, the uh, uh, upperclassmen or the tax used to inspect the room and everything. So I got then uh, this first one, uh, two demerits for uh, dirty glass on 10 July 1962. 
<laughs> three demerits for no card displayed for shoes being repaired. <laughs> uh, three demerits for carrying fatigues while not <laughs> to the engineering fundamentals class. And Kathy's improperly displayed uh, one shirt button wasn't uh, buttoned. So anyway, they could run you out on, on uh, you know, if somebody didn't like you, they could just keep getting the demerits and demerits and, and you'd have to walk the area and they actually could run you out. Wow, very, very strict. A little more strict than definitely some of the things we had to deal with. Well, it's got, it, 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 uh, you know, you have to, yeah, sure. you have to wonder how valuable was that to have a demerit on a dirty glass, you know, but anyway. Yeah. Well, okay. getting into some specific Army wrestling talk, uh, you know, you mentioned how Army had three All-Americans in your class. That's uh, the only time in Army history. Um, and we know you got a lot of stories when it comes to, to wrestling. Some of the ones that uh, you kind of talked to us before was some of the rivalries and with some of the teams in the Easterns, like Lehigh. We know one of those big matches was you and Mike Caruso, who was a three-time NCAA champ, uh, that dual meet your yuck year. Maybe give us a couple of your top highlight, favorite, or most notable wrestling memories. It could be about the actual mat or just teammate experiences, sure. anything. Yeah, I have a few of them, so I'll go through quickly. One in particular, uh, Mike Caruso, I wrestled him at, uh, in the auditorium, <clears throat> big, huge auditorium at West Point. And, uh, and it was a great anticipated uh, match. And he actually came up a weight. So he was a 23-pounder, and I was a 30-pounder. And then for the national racing year, I cut down to 23. Because Yutaki, a three-time national champion, was on the state was at 30. So anyway, this match is going on. And the match ended up in the 72. But during the match, somebody come running into the auditorium and said, uh, your van from the Bethlehem, Pennsylvania Globe Gazette is on fire. You better go out. So the reporter thought they're just trying to get him out of there so he can't see Caruso wrestle. So another guy came up and told him, and they went back and forth and back and forth, and finally convinced the, the man from the Bethlehem Globe Gazette that his his big uh, van from the from the office was on fire. And he sits there for a while and goes back and forth, says some swear word and says, "Let it burn." Cruz is going to be, is getting beat. This is history. And his van burned down in the West. It was <laughs> <laughs> ashes when he came out. Because I've been told by people who were actually there. Another particular story <clears throat> is that uh, Mark Skirman and Robbie and I were all going to be in the finals of the Easterns our junior year. Collier, as you call it. And uh, I had to wrestle Mike Johnson in, in the finals. I wrestled Peritoria in the semis and upset him and then from Lehigh and then had to wrestle Mike Johnson in the finals. He had won the Outstanding Wrestling Award the year before for Pitt. And he was the one in high school that they were talking about that was, was a four-time in Pennsylvania. And he was a year older than me. And, and, and I didn't know this, that Mike Johnson was Mark Skirman, my roommate's hero in high school. So he wouldn't tell me anything about him. I never asked him or anything and so forth. But Mark thought I was going to get clobbered, you know, by Mike Johnson. <laughs> so anyway, there's a picture in the, in the fighting back book 
that I took Mike Johnson down with two, two seconds left. And I came off the mat, and there's Mark literally sitting in the stands, sobbing, just like he lost his mother or something, sobbing, 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 crying. And he had a wrestle in a couple of matches in the, in, in the finals. And his dad came up to him and said, I know my son, when he gets touched like that, he wouldn't even be able to wrestle. So he lost somebody he's beaten him before many times and then turns around and takes third in the national that year. But that's how, how close we were. Uh, let's see here. Any others that you can think of? I'm looking, looking to see if I... I got to tell you this one radiator story. <clears throat> if you want to hear some funny stories. <laughs> we, we, we lived in the <laughs> North area and, uh, and uh, we had these old radiators and you couldn't control the radiator in the room so it was always too hot in there so you, always had, you had to keep the windows open no matter how cold it was. So we'd regulate the temperature in the room by lowering or closing the top window a little bit. So Mark and I would take time or turns. One night, I woke up with the most scary scream I've ever heard in my life. I said, Mark, what's the matter? What's the matter? He said, I went to close the window, and my male organ fell out of my shorts and landed right on the radiator, and I have a two-and-a-half-inch burn, and I'm in pain. Help me. going to help you. So the next day, Mark goes to sick call with his two and a half <laughs> and that went through the core in 15 minutes. <laughs> and then there's oh. a, oh yeah, all kinds of different. I could make a joke or two right now, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna do it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm trying to think of any other stories. Can you talk about uh, when you were telling me and Brian off air about the Lehigh match and just oh, how yeah. like intense it was and the police escorts. If you can just talk about maybe some of those rivalries with the teams in the conference and maybe even the Navy match and just how intense it was. Sure. Well, one that comes to mind right away was, was Lehigh. And Jerry Lehman and Coach Alice went to college together at the University of Northern Iowa. And uh, anyway, Lehigh had a lot easier time recruiting than Coach Alice did at Western. You know? Anyway, we had heard about what they called a snake pit at Lehigh, and I'm going to tell you what it's like wrestling there. For me, I loved it, but for some wrestlers, it intimidated. The, it was called a snake pit, and there were so many people there that when we came out of the locker room into the big hallway, they had a police escort to take us out to the gym. We went to the gym, and the place was packed to the rafters all the way down to the edge of the mat. There was no side mats around the regular mat. If you got thrown off the mat, you got thrown into the crowd and they'd throw you back in again. And they told us ahead of time that never would they be, uh, say anything bad or they would pinch you or swear. They just loved wrestling so much that they would throw you back in, in, in the mat. And uh, anyway, there's one particular need. Somebody just sent me this newspaper article recently. Read it there. Joe Paturo faces unbeaten Steenledge in a featured battle. Okay, I had I had beaten Peritori and and Caruso the year before. So anyway, I had to, I ended up Joe Peritori and I wrestled and I ended up ended up in a in a tie. So 
And the, the, the competition was very keen back then. Navy was had coached by Ed Perry. And I'll be very uh, straightforward that way. Navy at that time, and probably still does, had an extremely good recruiting system because of where their location was and so forth. And a lot of the graduates involved in recruiting and so forth. And now what you're doing is kind of, kind of acting because recruiting makes a difference. So we always had a tough time against Navy. And one year we had them beat. And then one of our wrestlers made a mistake with three seconds left and got taken down and we ended up in the blues. And so always close matches with Navy. Ed Perry, who was a three-time national champion at Pitt, was a coach and very much a gentleman. And uh, was this tremendous rivalry and, and uh, with Lehigh, Penn State, uh, just, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of times we were beating Penn State and a lot of these schools and so forth. One story I got to tell you that most people won't believe uh, is not a wrestling story, but a football story. One time, uh, I think my Kyle year, the first year, we we're going to play Penn State, State again. And I think we beat them, the upset them the year before at West Point, but now the game is going to be at Penn State. And Rockwell McGurk was one of the cheerleaders, you know, for the Army team. And they had everybody in such a frenzy. All of a sudden, one of the cadets hollers out, stack tables, stack tables. And so, I didn't want to get into kind of trouble as an athlete, so I <laughs> headed for the walls. And these big tables, I think they still have a mess hall, they started stacking these tables, one on top of the other, on top of the other. I thought we're all going to go to jail for this. And they stacked these tables all three, four, five high. And, <laughs> and the next day, we, we all got reprimanded and everybody had to pay so much for the damage and so forth but nobody got really really in trouble because more or less the whole core was involved and so forth anyway let's know they were still ripping <laughs> off cadets cadet accounts back in the 60s that's great <laughs> yeah for real one thing i can just share with you uh on these questions here we had a lot of good assistant coaches at that time uh we had great ruth who wrestled at Lehigh and then quit Lehigh and then coached at West Point for a while and then went on to be a two-time national champion in Oklahoma. We had Grace Simons, a three-time national champion at Lock Island State. We had Freddie Powell, a national champion. But the one who helped me the most was Grace Simons. I never had any really, really good takedowns, just persistent. And he said, I'm gonna teach you the high crop. And he drilled me hour after hour after hour after hour after hour. In fact, in the Coast Guard tournament of senior year, Oklahoma State was there, and Utah, I was at 30, Utah and I wrestled, and I think I even took down Utahki with the, with the high crotch. And, you know, uh, and the score ended up to be four to seven to four or something like that. And usually his matches were not that close. So he and I are in the, in the shower room after the match, after the that weight class or whatever. And he comes in and he's from Japan with his bar of soap and, and a brush and it bows over a little bit and asks me to scrub his back. <laughs> I'm like, I'm from Iowa. I'm a homosexual. What do you want me to scrub his back for? So he hands it to me and turns around. <laughs> so I walk up and scrub his back, do a brush. And 
rinsed him off and everything, and I'm sweating and uh, so forth. And then he turns around and gives me a real official bow and says something in Japanese. So I go out of there and ask Coach Alice, what is going on? How can you prepare me for this? You know, He said it was a great honor because most of the matches uh, weren't that close. But anyway, I, I could take down, uh, there wasn't anybody that I never was able to take down with high cross, including Territory and Crusoe. And, uh, and you know, the only disadvantage of that is that when I was in the Army, it was a reaction. So I'd be at a formal function or something, and somebody shake hands and they jerk my arm, and I'm going for the high, high crotch at an official party. It's like, get back, get back in position, you know. Okay. I think that's the wrestler in all of us. Right. I think, I think that what, what yeah, I was going to say, at, uh, at Jimmy Rafferty's wedding last year, there was, I mean, there was hand fighting on the dance floor going on for at least an hour or two. <laughs> well, at our, at our wedding, uh, my wife's from Southern Minnesota, from Northern Iowa, a lot of the wrestling team from West Point came, and then my high school team was there. And it was a non-alcoholic party, although I think somebody snuck something in the book. So what do wrestlers do when they get together at a party? They're going to wrestle. So the next morning, most of us had carpet burns on our foreheads. So when we went to the wedding and walked in my wife's, wife's house, she saw those mad burns, and that's the only time I ever seen her upset. So all our wedding pictures got mad, mad burns on her forehead. Oh, gosh. Is there any area that uh, we're forgetting here? I'm just trying to think of no, it's great. I want to move into some of the social topics and some of the things that happened while you're at West Point, starting sure. with when President Kennedy was killed, that happened during your time. What was the reaction of of the academy, and was there anything maybe that changed because of that? Okay, I'll start with General MacArthur's talk, and then lead up to that. General MacArthur gave the talk, the famous talk, soldiers never died, they just stayed away, from the poop deck at West Point in May, of 1962. And I went to West Point in Ju July of 62. The coach invited me out, made a way for me to come out for the graduation of 1962, because President Kennedy was going to speak. And he spoke in that big auto. It was raining, so they weren't in the auto coming outside. So it was in this big field house, same place where I wrestled Crusoe. Anyway, Kennedy gave this talk, and it was, I just can't explain it. It was just, there was so much charisma and everything to it. You, you just were, were in awe uh, to hear the man because he was so dedicated and so forth. Well, when, when he, so everybody's loved President Kennedy at the academy as far as I knew. So uh, I think our third class in the morning or sometime, I, uh, we got called in and somebody came in and announced that Kennedy I got assassinated. And it was uh, really, 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 really terrible. And the long range effects of that were profound because I've studied Kennedy in detail. And you can, anybody can search this out and said it's a document and it can be found out that President Kennedy 
planned and get having all American soldiers out of Vietnam by the end of 1965. Within 24 hours of President Johnson becoming president, he reversed that. If Kennedy had not gotten killed, I would not have lost one out of every 20 of my classmates, one out of every six when they got wounded or maimed, and many of us wouldn't have PTSD today, all because of, of that situation. And I, I walked the place where Kennedy got killed and was gonna give my opinion, Oswald could not have killed Kennedy. From all my studies, this is my opinion, Kennedy was, there was many shooters, Kennedy was shot by one of those uh, things, you know, on the road you lift up, you know, from the pipe and so forth. That's my opinion where Kennedy got shot. But anyway, as, as I, for a long time, I was very bitter about that whole thing, but things happen in life and, and it is what it is. Bob Arvin, the captain of the, uh, the wrestle team the year before, we got killed in Vietnam. And then, of course, the gym's named after him. And uh, his wife was never the same person afterwards. And all the years, all the, all the, through the years, I wanted to reach out to her and couldn't get a hold of her and talk to Bob's family and so forth. And, and about six months ago, I was able to talk to Bob Arvin's wife. It was, uh, you know, things happen in life that are just like a lot of things that are happening now. There's no explanation for sometimes, yeah. but uh, it, was a, it was a great loss and uh, a shocker to see how evil takes place at high levels sometimes, you know. Yeah. Is there anything you'd like to say about Bob Arvin? I mean, the gym's named after him. We all grew up uh, training there, obviously, but I think probably our knowledge of, of him as a, as a man and an officer is, is limited. But you have personal experience with him? Yes. Yeah. We were all very close. You know, the wrestling team was very close. And even though he was brigade commander, there was no nothing, you know, you know, that we had to watch or anything, you know, practice or on trips or anything like that. But he was one of those from Ypsilanti, uh, Michigan. He's just one of those rare, rare individuals that you just couldn't help but to love and care about. Kind, strict, leadership. Um, you just couldn't say enough things about him. And uh, he, he has got wounded and, and, and got better and then volunteered, for, I think, for one last patrol or something, uh, the sniper. But he was a great, great person. And uh, anything that you ever hear about him is, is all true. Yeah. And it was, it was a wonderful thing that they, they named the gym after him. Absolutely. So we kind of already started talking about Vietnam and the escalation of force that happened in uh, 65. Um, and I was telling you just before the show, interestingly enough, that the class of 2005 experienced kind of the same thing with, with uh, the events that happened on 9-11 and, and how their experience at West Point changed, much like yours. What was the message that the Academy was telling the cadets at the time when things were picking up in Vietnam and you guys were going into your first year and 
what were your thoughts individually as you approached choosing your branch and post and all the different things that were going into what your future was going to look like? Excellent question. Our plea year, there was no talk about Vietnam. And then as time passed, all of a sudden some could, former cadets ended up there. And so pretty soon they <clears throat> started having funerals at West Point. And uh, all of a sudden we realized that uh, we're going to go there. And uh, I myself was not interested in being any, any army hero. So I did not want to go into the infantry. And uh, I couldn't if I wanted to because it filled up so fast. So I, I went in, I wanted to go into the signal corps. And uh, I thought that would be safer. But as it turned out, it wasn't any safer because, because we had, because of Tet Offensive in 68, we had to start going on patrols and so forth. And, and, uh, and I'll just tell you one incident that how things can happen in war. They needed bodies in Vietnam so fast that anybody that took chemistry or physics in high school was automatically as enlisted men put in the single car. And many of them didn't even have, have a, uh, any, hardly any training with a weapon. And when Tet Offensive hit, I was called into a meeting at 1700 hours as, as a company commander. And they said at daybreak, you're taking one third of your company in a helicopter and you're going to go on a patrol. And I stood up and I, and I said, sir, this is insane. And I told him what I just told you, they don't have any infantry training. This is insane. And some colonel says, sit down captain or I'm going to relieve you. So I started to sit down, you know, because I thought this is crazy. Then I realized they're going to put somebody else in there. They're still going to send them out if I don't go with them. So anyway, I shut up. We stayed up all night long, took out the ranger handbook, taught them safety, the weapon. They didn't know anything. And because they were Singapore people, they were just trained to run the radios and the big equipment and so forth. So we went out the next morning and it was like a boy, no matter what you told them, they weren't scared at all. And it was like a Boy Scout hike until fortunately we got fired upon early and then they gradually learned and then they became proficient on patrols and so forth. But the one thing that happened to me in Vietnam that changed my life is that uh, when I first got to Vietnam on the 15th of December, 1967, I was right before the Bob Hope Show, which went all over Vietnam. I was at play cool with the fourth infantry division. So I had something to do with, with putting that show and getting all uh, the equipment for Bob Hope and Raquel Welch and Leslie Uggams and the band and everything. So my first two weeks in Vietnam, and this is great being in the Singapore. Then on the 31st of December, I got called into the Colonel's office. And in so many words, he said, Airborne Ranger, West Point wrestler, we're giving you this assignment. Next day at five o'clock, 1700 hours, I landed in a small area. It's probably only two, two blocks in diameter at most. And some very, very high top secret crypto 
equipment there that, that they needed to be working and there was a problem. The previous lieutenant either got killed or was wounded or something, I don't know what happened. So I got there 1,700 hours. I remember going to the tent and the first thing I thought of, if we're ever overrun, who are they gonna go after first? They're gonna go after the lieutenant, the sergeants and so forth. And here the lieutenant tent is right in the middle of this open area. So I shouldn't even sleep there. So I thought, I thought well, I'll wait till tomorrow night to find some place to sleep. It's already a, all this stuff going on. Well, and the other thing I realized, the sandbags around the tent only went up to the level of the cot. Well, I'm laying on top of the cot. <laughs> We're gonna make, anyway, there's all kinds of things I saw wrong. But anyway, about midnight, the uh, first night we got hit. And it was just like the 4th of July. And dark, pitch dark, and then flares go on and off. And we found out afterwards that Suicide Squad uh, drug themselves up, said goodbye to their families, and they're going to kill as many Americans, destroy as much equipment as, as they could. And they wore just like a swimming suit, and their bodies were all greased up. So anyway, I'm crawling out <clears throat> of the tent along the sandbags, pulling my M16 and my radio in case we had a call on reinforcements or something. But anyway, the flares go on, off. Flare went off, it's like daylight. Standing 15 feet in front of me was a Viet Cong with an AK-47, like this. I'm, I'm crawling along the ground. So I knew instantaneously, as soon as the next flare comes off, we're going to have to face off. And as a flare went off, I'm pulling my M16 up. He's got it at the shoulder, ready to pull the trigger. And I'm all, if you've ever been driving, and your deer runs in front of you in the car, and you feel the impact. I was already feeling the impact of the bullets in my head, in my body, feeling. And at that moment, one of the soldiers, about 15 feet to my right, had his M16 on automatic and hit the vehicle right across for and took his head off. But the next morning, you have to live with all this, all this carnage in your mind, and you're, you're never the same again. Vietnam War, in one sense, was the worst thing to happen to me. In the other sense, it was the best thing to happen to me because it forced me to go back to day one and find out what life is all about. And that's been to my advantage. That's why at age 76, I'm like a 50-year-old, except I had an accident in 85 with my pelvis. So... The VA encourages us to, to share, and I couldn't share anything until two years ago with four of our son, or four of our five sons, we have each of them from daughters, took me to Vietnam in January of 2018, two weeks, and we went through the whole country, went to the battle sites of Dok Tho, Kantum, uh, a place called Oasis, and I, I was two leaders at these places before I became company commander. And Oasis was completely wiped out. Every American killed about nine months after I, I left there. But anyway, going back to Vietnam was so beneficial because we talked to, to members of the Viet Cong and the NBA. And every one of them told me, 
they said, it wasn't the soldiers that we were against. We could have been friends with the American soldiers, but it was Russia, it was China, and the American government that forced us to have this war. And these family members would say that their father and grandfather would drink strong rice wine because of his PTSD until he died. One family member took me out in a boat, a small boat. She said, this is where my family member fought. He fought in the water, had a heat for straw, and showed me all the different places. And then even though it's a communist country, they are allowed to use the internet. So they know the truth about the United States. They know the truth. And they love the United States because of the free enterprise system. So when I came back, I was a changed person. I, I, I thought they're gonna hate me and all that. And it was just, just the opposite. It was, uh, it was a wonderful experience. And I give talks to veterans and, you know, whenever I get a chance and, and talk about that. And, and, uh, and for years I give talks in schools and corporations and stuff and still give talks if anybody ever wants to have any kind of a talk on different things. Um, you mentioned, Jordan, about please tell about what it was like when we got back. When we got back, it was horrible. It was worse than being in Vietnam because you come back and you expect people to at least be decent to you. They spit on you. They throw vomit at you. It was so bad that the post commanders ordered wigs. And so if their soldiers took a weekend leave, they could wear a wig and wouldn't get picked on all the time. That's so one soldier lost his arm in Vietnam and his parents and her parents went out to eat at a restaurant. And this lady says, what happened to his arm? And the father-in-law says, my son-in-law fought in Vietnam and lost his arm. And the waitress goes up and spits in his face and said, too bad you didn't die. It was awful. And the reason they're kind to soldiers now is because of what they did to feel that's, that's one of the reasons the suicide rate is so high. Every day, 20, 22 veterans kill themselves. Not all Vietnam veterans, because war is so horrible. Anyway, that was a tough time. Very tough time. And uh, one of the things that I was recommended by the VAs to buy a farm and to work from home and give talks and raise cattle and be around plants and animals. We raised our eight children on the farm. Uh, we homeschooled for many, many years, and that was very helpful. We still live on the farm, and, and if I'm having a bad day, I go out and work. We don't have livestock, but there's plenty of things to do, in garden, mowing lawn, and so forth. So this country has made a lot of mistakes, a lot of wars we should have never been in. But we were the soldiers and we have to do what we're doing, what we're, what we're told. And we have to learn how to survive. And one of the things that has helped me through the years goes back to what I was talking about earlier in wrestling in seventh grade.
I learned how to be thankful every single day. Be thankful for things. Be thankful for things that even though they seem bad. And so I'm thankful for my dad being the way he was. Because he wasn't. I never would have had a desire to make something out of my life because I wanted my dad to love me. If I could win one more wrestling match, maybe my dad was alone. So a negative turned out to be a positive. Five years ago, I had shingles because of nightmares. I had redness on down the right side of my body. Seven weeks late, seven days later, all of a sudden I had some kind of new redness on this side of my body. They took me in, they thought to Toma VA hospital, they thought I had, had uh, Rocky Mountain fever. They tested me all out. And in the, in, in I, one thing I failed to mention is that I always, every day I write down the things I'm thankful for. Then I draw a line and write down the things that are wrong in my life and I try to be thankful for them because I see there's a pattern when you're thankful for things that seem bad that they're gonna turn out to your good sooner or later. So I'm writing down, I'm thankful for shingles. Well, anyway, some people thought I was crazy when they heard that. Well, I'm down there at the VA hospital in Toma and all of a sudden they come in after all the reports and said, I want to tell you, you've got bad Lyme disease. If you didn't have shingles, we never would have discovered your Lyme disease because it was going into your organs and you, you would be an invalid or something the rest of your life. So now I'm writing down, I'm thankful for shingles, I'm thankful for Lyme disease. One day I'm down there, I'm light skinned, I'm out on the farm and they found a little spot up here and then we better check for melanoma. And so they took a biopsy, I'm getting out of the chair and all of a sudden they said, they've got a little dot here, why don't we just check that too? They checked that and I had melanoma. Three operations later, I got a hole in my cheek like that. They're going for the fourth operation. They called my son who's a doctor and they said, we're pretty scared. But anyway, they got it on the fourth time. And the reason I have this crease in my cheek is because they had to rearrange all my skin to, to fill up uh, that hole. And it says, so happens tomorrow, I have to go to the VA hospital in Toma to get my skin checked. Every six months I check my whole, whole body. So I know that being thankful makes a difference. I know it, I've lived it all these years. And also to doing kind deeds. If it's not your nature to do a kind deed, make a practice of doing a kind deed every single day. Don't go to bed until you do it. And pretty soon it's gonna become a second nature to you. And the, one of the things that people don't realize, if this becomes second nature to you, you have things happen to you that, that you're protected from. It's like what goes around comes around or however that saying goes. It's like if you're a, a long jumper or a pole vaulter or something, it's like, like being an average athlete, but you've got like, somehow miraculously the gravity from the, from the moon is on the earth and you're the only one that has it. So even though you're an average athlete, you still can jump farther. You still can pole vault farther because these laws of the universe work for you. And you, you as a wrestler will see your record go up by simply vowing to do a kind thing every single day and be thankful and put it in a book. I can tell you a story about a wrestling team I talked to a couple of years ago that the wives, the coaches, some of the fans and the wrestlers started doing that. They went from here to here in one year because it doesn't work.
It doesn't work exactly according to what you want sometimes, but I can give you example after example of things that have happened to me, how many times I should have died. I could just go on and on and on. So if there's one point that I'd like to leave with everybody, <coughs> excuse me, is that if you want to find happiness in life, do a kind deed every time, every day. Become second nature and write down the things you're thankful, including the things that seem wrong, and it'll come back and help you. And it'll help you in wrestling, it'll help you get through West Point, it'll help you get through life. Sorry for getting so emotional and carried away. Oh, thank, thank you for sharing uh, all that. And I know it's not easy to do, and we can hear your emotions. And I know me and Brian are both tearing up at that one point, just the rawness and, and your honesty with everything. And we don't have enough opportunities this generation to hear from the experiences of our Vietnam vets. Thank you for everything that you went through. And um, I think we can all learn something from your heart of thankfulness and, and, and how we can apply that to our lives. I appreciate it. Appreciate it, Bob. If anybody wants to read more about it, they can go to my website, www.bobstingley.com or somebody's looking for a speaker. Also, I have a Facebook site that's not political. I, I had political stuff in it for a while because I was so upset, but they're doing the veterans and so forth. And finally, I just cut out all political stuff and went back to my original purpose of my Facebook site is for inspiration. I have simple inspiration sites. So if you just want to get inspired, you want to see a nice scene, you want to see animals, good stories and so forth, you can go there and because I add to it almost every day. That's under my name also. But I'm, I'm driven to try to help anybody that anybody that uh, ever wants to talk. I got plenty of time to talk, you know, on the phone. If anybody wants a, a copy of my fighting back, you can contact me and uh, I, I'll do whatever I can to help anybody. Bob, I didn't say it before, but I really appreciate you sharing. Uh, you know, that was, I'm sure, extremely hard. And um, one of the things I, you know, I picked up on you know, was the fact that you were able at such a young age to grasp, you know, that sense of gratefulness, thankfulness, and, you know, thinking, you know, when you're in sixth or seventh grade, you know, I, I, looking back, I was like, man, I, I didn't realize those things. So I was in my, like, you know, late 20s, early 30s. Um, and you know, that's that's really commendable that you were able to do that at such a young age, and then you know use that and helping everybody along the way. Um, you know it's it's a it's a true blessing. Um, so I really appreciate you sharing that, and especially your um, your stories of Vietnam. Um, you know it's really it's it's well we live in a different time now where you know we come back from war and we're celebrated and it makes things a lot easier. And um, I, I couldn't imagine coming back from, you know, deployments and, and being treated the way you guys were treated. Uh, it, I wouldn't be able to do it, I don't think. And so I really appreciate you sharing that. Well, I think we covered a lot and I'm really thankful that you were able to take time to do this with us, Bob, and share some of your life and things that you went through. And uh, maybe we'll have you on again here in the future and, and get some more funny stories and, and different stuff from you. Thanks for tuning in to the B-Hall Radio Show. 
If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. If there's something you'd like to hear on a future show, reach out to us on any of our social media, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Or you can reach us at email, bhaw.radio at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts. And as always, go Army, be Navy.